I'd like to welcome everyone back to this session. And next week's uh, topic is going to be at what cost will renewables and natural gas keep the lights on in Alberta after phasing out coal? Our speaker will be David Gray. Upcoming sessions are listed on the SACPA website, www.sacpa.ca. And all the sessions can be heard in audio and as a podcast on that website. A suggestion box is placed outside the main door here, in case anybody would have ideas for future topics. Okay, today's topic is what does the future hold in terms of new job opportunities? I would invite people um, to go to the mic over here by the wall on my right to ask questions using the microphone. Um, please keep your questions uh, brief, topical, only ask one or two questions and then return to your seat after you ask your question. No questions from the floor, please, because these are being recorded as, as well. Okay, uh, I'd like to welcome back uh, our speaker again, uh, Dr. Richard Mueller. Hi, Richard. Hello. Am I on? No. I'm on. Hi. Hi. <coughs> Bye. Hi. I am. I don't hear myself. Hi. Oh, yes, now I'm on. Hi, Richard. My name is Henning Mundell. And uh, you had a, a slide up there related to globalization. And while um, we're used to thinking of being too much exporters of raw products and importers of uh, manufactured goods rather than having more manufacturing done locally. The statement up there, though, related to exporting skill intensive and importing labor intensive. Can you maybe elaborate on that a bit? Uh, let me just find this. There, slide. the first one on globalization. There we go. <laughs> uh, well, yeah, no, we, yeah. we, this is just economic theory. I forget the name of the theorem, but it's, it's basically says that you're going to export the thing that you have a comparative advantage at. We have comparative advantage at, thing, at uh, producing things that are very skills intensive and not necessarily labor intensive. Example, well, you think, think about something like, you think about the, the oil sands or something like that, okay? It, it's, it's, a, it's, a, it's a resource, it's a raw material, but it's, you know, highly skilled people involved in the extraction of that resource, so. That's, that's where, you know, we, we do the same thing with mining, a lot of other things. We have, you know, compared advantage in, in, in financing for, uh, for natural resource extraction, all sorts of things. Okay, or something like um, the other day, I was just, what's that fancy coat that everybody wears, the Canada Goose one? The one that I can't afford. Okay, I guess they're selling for up to $1,500. Okay, so there, here's an example of a manu something's being manufactured in Canada. 
that's well, and they're basically able to exploit that uh, the, the name brand that they have. And so they can manufacture those in Canada and be very profitable. Uh, I saw something the other day about uh, manufacturing uh, mattresses with memory foam. And I don't know, for whatever reason, I keep getting these things on my... It's kind of creepy, of course, if you go online now and you go on Facebook or whatever, and you, you know, you're, you know, I'd be looking for tickets for wherever, and all of a sudden it would pop up in my newsfeed, right? That you know, and so for for some reason, I keep getting this stuff for bedding, and the bedding's made in Canada, this high quality um, memory foam bedding that they'll ship to your house, right? But we, you know, we have an advantage in doing that kind of thing because that's sort of a, a, a technical kind of product that we can pr produce and we can even export those kind of things. So. So those are the kind of things we have advantages at, the things that are sort of high-skilled. And, uh, you know, if, if we had to produce little trinkets like you buy at the dollar store or something like that, we would be, we wouldn't have a dollar store, so. <coughs> uh, Richard Muir, thank you very much for being here. <coughs> Excuse me. Uh, my name is Terry Shellington. And in some respects, it's astonishing to me that it's taken us this long to have this kind of urgent conversation because uh, a full, uh, Half century ago, I was studying theology in Saskatoon, and in an ethics class, we looked at the coming automation and the elimination of jobs, and we played around with the vision of a guaranteed annual income in which some people would have market-driven jobs and other people would do volunteer work, which was credited towards their, their, uh, their uh, uh, guaranteed annual income and, and thus a society in which everybody had some kind of purposeful, meaningful work to do. Uh, any comment on, on the relevancy of that vision and guaranteed annual income for the kind of future that you're predicting in which jobs keep vanishing? Yeah, thanks for the question. Um, <coughs> I did have a slide in here about guaranteed annual income. And then sort of, <coughs> excuse me. <coughs> and it does seem like a pretty good idea. It's one of those sort of weird things where the left and the right can kind of get along in a lot of ways. And if, if, for those who don't know, a guaranteed annual income is basically just, a, it's also called a negative income tax or a universal basic income or many, many different ways to sort of uh, uh, to categorize it. But it's just basically, a, a, it's, it's like your GST rebate if you get one of those or the new uh, you know, carbon tax rebate. You just get a check from the government uh, every month, let's say, and then that's taxed away once you fill out your tax forms at the end of the year if you make more than the threshold. So the whole idea behind that is you just give everybody a check uh, and they spend it the way they choose to, to spend it. But if you make more than whatever the the threshold is then you end up paying it back, okay? And this replaces all of the social programs. That's supposed to be the idea of it. It replaces the other social programs. So, so this is why sort of the, a lot of people on the left like it because they said, okay, yeah, we're taking care of those people, blah, blah, blah. Of course, there'd be a lot of argument over the, you know, exactly the amount of those checks, I presume. And the right likes it because you get rid of this bureaucracy, uh, you know, that has to run social assistance and EI and, you know, housing programs and that kind of thing. Um, so I think we're going to maybe see more of that. I'm starting to see a lot of people put heat, uh, saying it's not necessarily such a good idea because it's sort of some people's way to bury these problems under the carpet, right? Or sweep them under the rug, I guess. You know, um, just give these people a bunch of money and then let's forget about them. We don't have to worry about them anymore. We can feel good in knowing that we help these people. And that's the end of it. When in fact, you're just sweeping the, the problem under the rug. So um, I, I know the person who's sort of done the seminal work on this in Canada back in Dauphin, Manitoba. I don't know if you've probably heard about some of these studies. Uh, back in in the 1970s, and Evelyn Forger, she's an economist out at uh, University of Manitoba, and I was just chatting with her back in November, and talking about some of some of these issues. And, and her work's really interesting because this sort of the, the first experiment that we had in Canada. What they did, 
you know, in, in economics, we try to be as experimental as we can a lot of times. So they sort of had a control group. They gave a bunch of money in Dauphin a bunch of, and in Winnipeg, a bunch of money. And then they didn't give other people money. And they looked at the different outcomes of the two groups. And basically, the arguments back in the 70s, the argument back in the 70s would have been something like, <clears throat> oh, you can't just give people money. They're just going to blow it on stupid stuff and, and uh, not do the right thing with the money. And we're just, you know, we, we don't want to do that. It's a disincentive effect. But what they found was that the people who got this income, the guaranteed annual income, uh, young men in particular stayed in high school longer. Okay, mothers would, uh, what would they do? Oh, they'd, uh, they'd take better care of themselves and their children with that money. So they weren't spending it on the wrong things. You know, on average, they were spending it on the right things. So somehow we sort of got into this point, and I'm, I'm trying to think back to my education. I think we get to this point where we sort of take all this stuff about markets and the, the, the omnipotence of markets so, uh, so seriously now, and we don't even question it anymore. And we should. We've got to start questioning that stuff again. Because markets are powerful. Nobody believes in markets more than an economist. But we also understand the limitations of markets as well. And, and sometimes we have those with globalization is a good example. So I don't know if that answers your question. Okay, my name is Mark Gettle. In the past, high school was seen as, as uh, obligatory or as very important, so it was publicly funded. But today, the high school leaving certificate really does not have the same value as in the past. Do you think it's time now for public education to be free public education to move into college and university so that we can uh, have that say, uh, raise the standard? You want and, the short and answer? How economically <laughs> feasible would that be? The short answer is, and you're not expecting this, but no. The short answer is no. And the reason I say that is because <clears throat> What we're doing, in essence, a lot of people say, okay, we need free, free education. It's what we call a blunt, a blunt policy instrument. We're sort of giving it to everybody. Who goes to university right now, by and large? What's the demographic? More women. Well, there's more women, but in terms of income. The demographic is still upper income and, and, and middle income people that go to university, by and large. Okay, so what we're doing if we give free education, in that case, is subsidizing the wealthy and the middle classes. We'd be, we're much better off to, to target it to, to low-income people. The problem with low-income people, and it's not their problem, the problem with us and low-income people, is low-income people don't necessarily have university education on their radar screen. Right? It's something weird that happens over on the west side of Lethbridge, and, and there's a good chance a lot of people have never been to, in that demographic have never been to campus, don't know what it's about, don't even think about getting to, into university, you know, maybe the college. Okay? So what we have to do over time, and this is where <clears throat> myself and colleagues do some research, we have to change that sort of cultural expectations, and we put that on the radar screen for kids when they're young. You know, go to some of the poorer neighborhoods in, in anywhere in the country and say, okay, Get on the bus, we're going to the university, we're going to show you what it's all about, okay? And if you, you know, we want you to keep doing well at school, if you can. There's a disadvantage, of course, for, for lower income people being in school in general. They might have to help their parents who might be ill or they might have to add, you know, contribute to the family income, et cetera. But if you make it to university, uh, we'll take care of you when you get there, okay? So put it on their radar screen. Make sure they do what it takes to get into university. Right now, what we do is we go into high schools, you know, in maybe grade 11 or grade 12, <clears throat> and we start telling all these kids about <clears throat> Excuse me. How to get student loans and scholarship money that's available to them and all that stuff. It's too late by then. It's too late. Okay. Uh, we're talking about this over lunch. My son's at the University of Lethbridge right now. One of my sons, the eldest, he's 20 years old. He grew up knowing professors because that's who I socialize with. Okay. A lot. Of, a lot of. So he he knows you know the people at the university. He knows the doors. I, I, you know the doors I open for him. Okay. He got that advantage. 
And it didn't matter what my income was, he was still going to get that advantage. So it's a cultural thing uh, we're after here, not a, not a money thing. So the answer to that question is uh, a Texasized no, <laughs> uh, that it's a bad idea, bad policy. And I know you probably didn't expect me to say that, but it's true. Thank you, Richard. Uh, following up on both this uh, Mark's question and also my husband, Terry, I'm Mary Shillington. Um, uh, we are, we being McKillop United Church, are doing, showing uh, Generation Poor uh, on the 15th of March, and, and it will be including the study of the, uh, of the Dauphin okay. project. Uh, one of the problems with that, I gather, was that whoever decided this was going to happen, uh, and, and the study of it uh, neglected to carry through on the analysis of the data. So uh, uh, I agree with you that it did make a big difference to everybody. Uh, so I guess my question is, it's a whole, a whole thing about uh, generation poor. The people who are still poor are, are, uh, are growing. And it, it's not just because of income, but it's the whole whole attitude and so on. And uh, uh, so what, what do we need to be doing? You know, like you talked about the whole socializing of the children to, to look at university and to look at, uh, to me, a college degree or a apprenticeship is just as effective, but to get people to looking at that. So the idea of taking children early to those different places is a good idea. What else could we be doing? Well, I think you got to. You know, the parents have to buy into it too, uh, definitely. Uh, and, and sometimes there's backlash from parents. I mean, as sad as it sounds, I think most people want their children to do better than they did. But sometimes there's backlash, you know, from parents. And you see this in some of the literature in the U.S. in particular, talking about, uh, you know, kids want to go off to, you know, be their first in, the, you know, in their uh, family, first generation to go to university or to college, as they call it, of course. And there's backlash from the families because they're afraid that they're going to leave them, you know, and and leave them, you know, leave them in their dust, you know. Uh, so we got to educate the parents too, you know, and, and I mean, what's interesting too in terms of the money, the money is important, don't get me wrong, the money for university is important. And again, my reason for saying <coughs> that free tuition would be a bad idea is because it's a regressive tax, you know, but uh, the money certainly is important. One of the things we can educate people about is people tend to overestimate the amount that university costs and underestimate the amount that it pays off, in other words, the benefits. And that's especially acute amongst lower income families who probably have no idea. The university tuition right now at, the, at Lethbridge is what? Ladies, 5,000 a year for a domestic student? About five, if you do full course load, five or six? Okay, about half the incoming students in Lethbridge get financial aid. So we, we sort of want to net out that financial aid. Because it makes the newspaper every year, oh, tuition's gone up 3% in Canada again, or 4% or whatever. That's the sticker price of tuition. And, and certainly the, the actual price that people pay hasn't, hasn't gone up by that much as far as I know. And w there's a lot of things now that are in place. I mean, Trudeau just took a lot of them away. But a lot of the tax advantages, federal tax advantages, credits and, and, and deductions for going to school, I mean, 2016 is the last year we can take advantage of those. Or, whoever's going to school or whatever. Uh, so there's been that going on. Um, what else? I lost my train of thought, Professor, moment. Um, um, yeah, uh, 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 the, the financial aid packages student get are much <coughs> more generous than they used to be. 
Okay, so we want to look at that. That's the actual price, and we got to get that price out there for people to understand. Go, hey, wait a minute, school's not that expensive. You know, here's what you're going to make. It's going to cost you the, you know, it's going to, you're going to have to give up a Honda Civic. That's what's going to cost you to go to university, but you're going to be making twenty thousand dollars a year more, uh, you know, right out of university than you're out of college or you would have been out of high school, and that's going to only increase over time, even if you get a fine arts degree. Okay, you're not going to make as much as an engineer, uh, but you're going to do okay. You know, the, the CBC always manages to find somebody, like I, I don't like all my students come here because then I got to sort of repeat the same stories over again, but uh, and they've already heard them. But I, you know, the CBC always manages to find somebody living under a bridge in a car in Victoria <laughs> w with a Bachelor of Finance degree and $100,000 in debt and use that as an example of why, you know, education doesn't pay. And that's just wrong. That's just, that's picking an outlier. I don't know how they get $100,000 in debt in the first, you know, if you go to dentistry school, you can amass that debt for sure. But uh, I don't know how they find these people, but they do, and they use that as an example. But what we want to do, and one of the things my, myself and my colleagues try to do is sort of educate, try to educate people about the, what's really going on, okay? So don't look at the sticker price of tuition. Don't, you know, look at all these other things. Uh, you know, look at the facts and, and draw your conclusions from that. Bev, Bev Mundelapu-Stone. Hi, thank you very much for your talk. <clears throat> Just a little segue to um, your university explanation at the moment. Um, today we read that the federal government is forgiving all the loans of people who have been uh, not paying them. Uh, if they I shouldn't paid. have paid mine back years ago, I guess. So. It was, so <laughs> those who haven't paid for six years or more, those that they can't find, it was a, quite a litany of people, and so they were, yeah. paid, were, were forgiving the loans, <clears throat> which is a very, very good thing. Okay, my question is, uh, you mentioned the insecurity of people who are in jobs because the jobs are so, um, so temporary and um, because of the way the labor market is, people are, are not speaking up when bad things are happening and uh, not saying they're overburdened. Um, as a psychologist, I saw a lot of um, nurses that were really having a hard time at, at our hospital because they were, either people were being uh, bumped and then they would end up with either losing their job or ending up with more work. And this is, a, it, it created a, a terrible amount of stress. So yes, I can, I can um, agree with your, your point. But one thing that you didn't talk about is with all these part-time jobs or lack of jobs or an insecurity of jobs is that people will also not be able to retire um, with any kind of security. So the, the ramp up, ramped up insecurity in our society I think is a very bad thing for democracy. Uh, would you comment? Yeah, and I would agree with that. Um, not only do people, of course, it you know, doesn't do their retirement any good if they have part-time jobs. Remember, I mean, not all part-time jobs are bad. A lot of people like part-time jobs, okay, for whatever reason. I think the bigger concern with part-time jobs are the ones, of course, if you involuntarily have one and you don't want one. So you're not only losing income, but you're also losing benefits a lot of times, too. Now, I think to this day and age, too, it's a little easier to swallow that kind of stuff because, of course, a lot of times we have two-income households now, so one spouse loses their job or goes part-time, we still have the benefits and things. So it's, 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 but it is an issue. A lot of people are, the financial crisis in 2008, certainly a lot of people lost a lot of money, you know, people nearing retirement. And so we see the sort of increase in the labor force participation rates of elderly people now, or what we used to be considered elderly, I suppose. Um, and that's one of the reasons we do it. You know, the, we see that increase is because people have lost that income security. So that, that is an issue. Yeah. Okay. Uh, my name is Peter Beal. And Can you stand I, a bit closer to the mic? Closer to the mic? Yeah. Are you getting it? <laughs> okay. 
So my name is Peter Beal, and uh, <coughs> what I, I want to just talk about is the populists that are fueling the, uh, uh, I mean, the, the angry unemployed that are fueling all this populist movement compared to our tech companies who are screaming for faster education because they can't get technically competent people. How do we channel people into, you know, into uh, the right uh, education so that they can take these high-paying jobs? That's one thing. And the other thing I want to ask is, like, when I got that piece of paper, you know, I was doing the same job before as after, and my annual income went up $10,000. So, you know, like, that should be conveyed to people, you know, go to university, get your degree. No, I mean, the latter point's true. I mean, it's what we call a sheepskin effect, right? And if you sort of look at the studies out there, you can actually, you know, a normal university degree right now is 40 courses over, you know, however many years. It used to be four years. I don't think it's that way anymore. But if you get 39 courses and drop out, your income's going to be way lower than if you get the 40 courses and get your piece of paper. And it's what we call a sheepskin effect. And so it sort of signifies that you have some sort of perseverance and you can commit and finish something. So, I mean, even though that one last course you get, at least if it was like when I was an undergrad, I just took whatever stupid course I needed to graduate, right? Uh, so I don't think I learned anything in that last course necessarily, but yeah, my income went up too, of course, when you graduated. So that was the first, uh, the second point. What was the, f oh, for people transitioning to jobs. I mean, I, I sort of like sort of this um, idea of uh, sort of, uh, again, we, I talked about some examples here, sort of compartmentalize things and try to figure out exactly what the job skills are that people need and then train them in those in short-term training programs. A lot of people, I was, a few years ago, I was in, uh, when I was, in Ottawa, I went, appeared before a Senate committee, and I started talking about uh, universities, and there was a woman beside me who was talking about the colleges. She was from the, um, oh, I forget the name, the, whatever, the umbrella group that uh, overlooks the, the, the colleges around Canada. And, uh, and she were talking, because a lot of people go from the university to the college, and she goes, well, yeah, we consider ourselves a finishing school for university graduates. <laughs> and I'm kind of going, you know, I mean, my instinct was, oh, really? Okay. But uh, once I thought about it, I went, yeah, that's exactly true. And so... In this day and age, people have to be willing and flexible and, and retraining, and I think we're not doing a very good job with that necessarily, because people want those sort of, okay, teach me coding in 10 weeks. It doesn't take much longer to learn coding to get a decent job. It's not that complex, okay, to do it at certain levels anyway, right? So yeah, get the people out and say, okay, hey, you've been laid off for whatever, here's a, here's a, a short-term course which subsidized by the government even, get in that course. And sort of, so, you know, again, sort of, look at those little modules of what makes up a job and give people the skills they need. Okay, it's no, I don't think it's really necessary to, for people to have to do a lot of the stuff they do at university or the college necessarily. The college is much more uh, nimble at uh, satisfying the labor market than we are. And students don't want that either. So I'm, I'm still sort of philosophically trying to think, do we cave into the students, a, a lot of who just want job training, or do we stick to our guns and, and, and raise our standards and, and make it an elite institution again, like, a, you know, more so than it is now? So, I, yeah, it's a bunch of babbles. I hope it made sense. <laughs> my name is John Kalpas. Uh, my question relates to uh, uh, our generation of uh, our grandkids, maybe perhaps even in some cases their parents, with all the uh, gadgetry they're on and technology and texting, et cetera, et cetera, what are those risks to society 
uh, of their abilities to socialize and communicate uh, in the old-fashioned way? <laughs> I, I don't know. <laughs> I mean, of course, we hear about that kind of stuff. That's sort of outside my... Uh, any expertise I have, but uh, yeah, I'm kind of worried about it too. We sort of see it with, uh, you know, I just marked a bunch of exams uh, last week, and you sort of see that kind of short attention span reflected on exams a lot of times, you know, and, uh, and, and that sort of way of communicating, which isn't the way to, go, you know, do it. So, I, I mean, I think the technology is really good, but, uh, you know, it's not, what did I say in class the other day? Something about, yeah, you know, having access to information is not knowledge, right? Knowledge is something you critically analyze some. Yeah, I'm looking at the librarian laughing over there. <laughs> you know what I'm talking about, Leona. Yeah. <laughs> so, um, yeah, I mean, we have this, all these data, all this data is out there. We have the availability unprecedented in our history. You know, like my students love it when I talk about the good old days when I was a student, and you can just see the eyes roll back, you know, and everything. We have to go to a, 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 big, a big building with books in it called a library, and we used to have to, like, photocopy things, you know, from journals and, and all that kind of stuff. So they have access to all that information. The, the problem becomes, and I think this speaks to your question, is we still need to analyze that information, critically analyze it, and put it in some sort of form. Then it becomes knowledge. You know, uh, data itself does not mean anything. You got to put it in some sort of manageable, you know, some sort of meaningful form, you know, to tell your narrative and whatever. So, okay. Well, um, my name is Rosemary Nyberg, and I'm one of Dr. Mueller's macroeconomic students, and I'm studying a management degree with an HR major. And I'm here today because your topic, Dr. Mueller, is of great interest to me in starting my business called Job Design. So I'm just wondering if you think that if employers were more strategic in their hiring decisions in terms of how the job they create um, relates to their overall um, strategic objectives, if it might become more efficient in um, terms of both the employer and the employee. Sure. <laughs> Thank you. <laughs> and That's I the love the answer. library. <laughs> yeah. No, I, I think it's, I mean, I don't know. I'm not an HR person, but yeah, certainly recruiting is hugely important, definitely. And, and the people you kind of get, and again, this is one of these, you know, the, some of these companies out there are, again, analyzing the tasks in different jobs. And, and part of the reason, of course, is that you can find the better fit for employees as well. Say, okay, this job requires X amount of time doing this or this skill or that. And then you can interview appropriately to get the, you know, the, 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 you know, the, the appropriate person. Um, so I think that's ultimately will result in a better match. And that's important too, because, of course, as an HR person, you should know, of course, turnover is a huge issue for a lot of firms. And, and, and the more you can mitigate that turnover, the, the better off both the firm and the employee are going to be. So, Thank you. you're welcome. I'm Ken Sears. Um, to get back down to the real question here, which is a matter of jobs, a matter of work, a living, people being able to work to make a living to support themselves and, and meet their needs. Uh, the projections, and I don't, I'm not going to make forecasts either, but the projections are really pretty clear that we're, we're seeing a removal of work, available work, right across this economy, right across the world's economy. And that, I think, is going to continue to happen for the foreseeable future. So how do we deal with that? Do we do something like the Dauphin model, you know, basic government support, basic living wage for everybody, that's a possibility, but that becomes very tenuous mm -hmm. because that's dependent upon political pressure and always, as we know, the people who are taking government subsidy, government uh, welfare, let's just use that, are the most vulnerable because that's the first thing that gets cut. 
That's where the pressure comes from the taxpayers, the quote unquote productive members of society. So you've got that problem. So do we then look at, instead maybe looking at the nature of work, what we consider work? We can, with the technologies available, pretty much feed, clothe, shelter everyone in the world. The problem then is one of distribution and one of you know, transportation of those goods and, and services. But, I'm, I'm trying to formulate this on the fly, so you'll have to forgive me. You wind, we wind up with, perhaps we have to look at the nature of work. Why are we still, you know, we may have to look at an eight-hour day. Why are we still doing that? You know, part-time work, all that. Part-time work does not work now because part-time work is predicated upon an average wage of eight hours a day. That's what you need to make a living. That's what the society has sort of come to. But if we, if we, there's no real reason why eight hours a day or, or, or full-time work is a sacred cow. We, we have to maybe start looking at different ways of this. So people can still make a living and still feed and shelter themselves, but without spending their entire lives tied to that employer or that employment. Yeah, I agree. No. I, and I'm, <clears throat> I didn't really get to that part of the presentation, but one thing we have to, you think about countries like France. I was on sabbatical in France about 10 years ago, and the university president at the time declared that everybody should take a two-hour lunch. A two-hour lunch, which is pretty easy to do in France because the food's so good. But, uh, <laughs> but I mean, I, I, I just about fell off my, my comfy desk chair <laughs> at the time thinking, okay, what, what kind of employer in Alberta would say, go take a two-hour lunch? In France, the parking was free between one and three when lunchtime was, right? The parking in, a, in the cities is free, or at least the ones I was in, you know, things like that. The French have also basically came up with a law uh, recently, you probably heard about it, saying that uh, employees don't have to answer their emails or something during non-business hours, right? Uh, a lot of other European countries don't work very long hours at all. The no normal work week is not 40 hours, it's more like 32 hours in, in, in certain countries, et cetera. So where I'm sort of going with all this, I think we have to learn how to share that work. Uh, ultimately, it's not always possible. And you know, I don't think we can sort of dictate to people um, how much or how little they should be working. But I, you know, all these gains from uh, from automation things are are great, and, and a lot of futurists have predicted this for years. Of course, that we're going to sort of get to this point, and that's great because it means more stuff. It means more things we can enjoy and more services that we can consume, et cetera. But we're not distributing it properly. So those are the debates we got to have. It's it's driving you know the one percent nuts in the U.S. that uh, it's a democracy. Because their money, you know, and the, the economy is not a democracy. So all of a sudden, you know, we have the disenfranchised people. All of a sudden, their vote matters, and this drives them nuts, because they can't control that vote, right? Although, well, I'm not sure if the outcome was so good this time, but, uh, but yeah. So this is a chance for people. And again, this is one of the benefits. You know, people should get out and vote, understand the issues, get out, and vote, do that kind of thing, put pressure on Trudeau. You know, he's down vacationing on some fancy island along with, you know the Aga Khan or whatever, which was, you know, bad optics. And that's the first thing you learn when you, get, when you, when you live in Ottawa is don't do anything that looks like a conflict of interest. Don't even do it. Don't, don't even think about it. And yet, anyway, he's down there doing that. So put pressure on those people. We have the power to put pressure on those politicians. And, you know, although even our NDP, let me get on that. Uh, let's blame the NDP for this one. Uh, what's bizarre, uh, here we go, uh, campaign finance reform campaign finance reform to eliminate the politicians beholden to, to deep pockets. It's, of course, in the U.S., it's a much bigger issue. I've once in my life gone to a political function that I paid money for, and it happened to be to see our Minister of uh, Environment our, and our MLA in Lethbridge West here. hundred bucks. 
to go have a drink with her and have some munchies or whatever, which isn't necessarily a bad thing, okay? What I found extreme, and, and I brought this up with whoever was taking my money, I said, he goes, oh, don't worry, you'll get your $75 tax deduction. Really? And, and so I, I sort of looked at that and went, this is really interesting, because if I gave that money to, let's say, the Lethbridge Homeless Shelter, I'd get 15 cents on the dollar back, not 75 cents on the dollar back. So even our NDP is, I don't think that law is going to change anytime soon. I could be wrong, you know. But even the NDP, of course, knows who's, you know, what, sort of what butters their bread, right? So. Thank you. And I did vote for them. Thank you, Dr. Mueller. <laughs> the hour of 1.30 has come and gone, so I guess we're finished. Th thanks again to Dr. Mueller. Thank you for coming. And we invite everybody back next week.